Hi, it's Tom Panneries, and I wanted to come on at the top of the show here to say that this is one of a series of episodes that will cover the events of September 11, 2001, along with the popular culture about it. Though these events are now 20 years in the past, they are still traumatizing to many, and I wanted to give you a heads up that listener discretion is advised. If you choose to listen to the episode and have thoughts, comments, or points you'd like to make, I would love to hear your feedback. Send me an email at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Comment on the Facebook post at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit, or find me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. After a short while, I headed home to join Patty and pick up our children from school. As I drove over the gravel of the beach club parking lot, I hesitated before pulling onto traffic on Ocean Boulevard. Just then, a car careening off the Rumson Seabright Bridge shot past, its windows down, and its driver, recognizing me, shouted, Bruce, we need you! Sort of know what he meant, but... On the way home, trying to put the morning in context proved almost impossible. All I was brought back to was myself in gym clothes on our high school soccer pitch as someone came running, shouting across the parking lot from the school cafeteria. I remember my face pressed up against the chain link fence as I heard the president's been assassinated, Kennedy's been shot. I pulled up in front of Rumson Country Day School where a crowd of parents with that same jittery silence running through them were picking up their children. I met Evan, Jesse, and Sam and took them home. Of the many tragic images of that day, the picture I couldn't let go of was the emergency workers going up the stairs as others rushed down to safety. The sense of duty, the courage ascending into what? The religious image of ascension, the crossing of the line between this world, the world of blood, work, family, your children, the breath in your lungs, the ground beneath your feet, all that's life and the next flooded my imagination. If you love life or any part of it, the depth of their sacrifice is unthinkable and incomprehensible. Yet what they left behind was tangible. Death, along with all its anger, pain, and loss, opens a window of possibility for the living. It removes the veil that the ordinary gently drapes over our eyes. Removed sight is the hero's last long gift to those left behind. That was a couple of excerpts from Born to Run, the autobiography written by Bruce Springsteen that was published a few years ago, and is his recollection of September 11th itself, as well as the feelings he was trying to capture in writing the album he and the E Street Band recorded and released in 2002, The Rising. That album, 
which marked the first time since the band fully recorded together in more than a decade, was a direct response to an interpretation of 9-11, and will be one of the deeper looks I'll take in this episode, which is the fifth episode in a six-episode series about 9-11 and popular culture, brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I want to do over the course of these six episodes is examine the books, movies, music, comics, and other popular culture that directly addresses or is about the attacks of September 11th, 2001. Each episode is going to focus on a different medium, and I am going to spend time reviewing them as well as evaluating their effectiveness and capturing the moments and feelings of the day. We use our culture to both memorialize and interpret events. And with 20 years gone since that day, it's time we look at whether or not those pieces accomplish what they set out to do. Now, I will tell you up front that I'm not going to be able to talk about every single piece of popular culture that is about 9-11, and will mostly stick to what I've read, watched, or listened to, or what had any sort of effect on me. So there will be a lot that I do not talk about, and you're welcome to let me know what I might be missing. But keep in mind that even though I'm going for some talk about history and popular culture here, I'm also going to speak from a very personal place, and that means that some of my preferences and biases might be on display. I think I'll also take a moment to tell you that while I'll be getting into people's visions, interpretations, or fictionalizations of 9-11, I will not be getting into anything regarding conspiracy theories. I personally find them, 9-11 trutherism and everything else associated with it, to be morally repugnant. Last episode, I looked at movies and television about or related to 9-11. For this episode, I'll be looking at how popular music responded to the events of the tragedy in terms of songs that were written, songs that became popular again, and songs that were considered controversial. To start us off, I'm going to give a little bit of historical context. I know that sounds silly considering that the historical context for the show is September 11, 2001, but back in 2001, Tuesday which was September 11th, was New Music Day, which meant that there were a number of albums that were scheduled for release on 9-11. Furthermore, pop music was in the final swing of the end of summer, so a number of albums were scheduled for release that week as well as the week after. But as far as the events in pop music that happened in September 2001, well, here's a rundown from Wikipedia. September 4th, the second album from System of a Down was released worldwide, and after the 9-11 attacks, the single Chop Suey is put on the uh, list of songs deemed inappropriate by Clear Channel, and I will uh, mention that in a little bit. September 6th was the 2001 MTV Video Music Awards. This is where Britney Spears performed her new single, I'm a Slave for You, in a very revealing outfit and featuring a number of exotic animals, including a white and live albino Burmese python on her shoulder. This led to a great deal of criticism from animal rights organizations such as PETA. Nevertheless, MTV named the performance as the most memorable moment in VMA history. From September 7th through the 10th, the Michael Jackson 30th Anniversary Special Tribute Concerts were held at Madison Square Garden. On September 10th, Blink-182 started shooting a video for their song Stay Together for the Kids, featuring the band playing in a derelict house. When they tried to finish the video the following day, the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center occurred, and the band abandoned the attempt to decide to shoot a different video for the song. On September 11th, Bob Dylan's Love and Theft album was released. 
Um, the September 11th attacks also result in the cancellation or postponement of many musical events due to the halting of many commercial flights and the somber mood of communities around the world. MTV and VH1 suspended regular programming to carry in news feeds from CBS. The 2001 Latin Grammy Awards broadcast is canceled. Sting, who had planned to stream a performance in Italy on the internet, reduces the webcast to one song. Enya's Only Time becomes the backdrop of music for CNN. The Much Music Video Awards scheduled for September 23rd are also canceled. Gerard Way witnesses the attacks as an inspired to start a band, which later becomes My Chemical Romance. Mariah Carey releases her infamous soundtrack, Glitter, accompanied by the unsuccessful film. The soundtrack's lead single, Loverboy, reaches number two on the Billboard Hot 100. On September 14th, Clear Channel Communications issues a controversial memorandum to its radio station containing a list of 165 songs considered lyrically questionable in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks. The list includes Knockin' on Heaven's Door, every song by Rage Against the Machine, and John Lennon's Imagine. On September 21st, America, a tribute to heroes, airs uninterrupted on all major networks. The solemn concert, only 10 days after the September 11th attacks, include performances by Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, Celine Dion, Neil Young, Stevie Wonder, Alicia Keys, Dave Matthews, Faith Hill, Mariah Carey, among others. And that is part of a telethon meant to raise money for September 11th relief efforts. I'll get to the charts in a little bit, um, but before that, I did want to mention that clear channel menu that came up. This was an internal memo of songs that the company, and the song, the company, by the way, is now known as iHeartRadio, put together as possible songs to avoid in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. Released to the public via the radio industry newsletter Hits Daily Double, it was a list of 165 songs that the company suggested might be avoided at that moment because of their content. The existence of the list was misinterpreted as a directive to ban the songs from airplay, and as that rumor went around, Snopes, who I'll look at a little bit more next episode, looked into it and determined what its actual purpose was. The list of 165 songs includes the ones mentioned above, as well as Fire and Rain by James Taylor, a number of ACDC songs, including Highway to Hell, Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World, which was put there because the programming directors who developed the list thought that happy songs may not be appropriate for the moment, Walk Like an Egyptian by the Bangles, You Dropped a Bomb on Me by the Gap Band, Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin, Crumbling Down by John Mellencamp, a few Metallica songs including Enter Sandman and Fade to Black, Free Fallen by Tom Petty, It's the End of the World as We Know It and I Feel Fine by R.E.M., Burning Down the House by Talking Heads, Disco Inferno by The Tramps, Jump by Fan Halen and Frank Sinatra's version of New York, New York. The entire list, by the way, is available on Wikipedia and has a number of songs on it that do make some sort of sense, at least from an objective point of view, as does the rationale behind the memo, which is to basically have a list available to station managers who might feel a little bit skittish about what calls to make concerning their station's programming in the days ahead. Granted, it's also an example of a corporation being skittish, and that's not unheard of. That's why there are some more ridiculous items on the list. I mean, I don't know if I necessarily want to hear What a Wonderful World after a terrorist attack, but I don't think I would have gotten so offended as to call up a radio station. But the cries of censorship were pretty unwarranted, even though they make sense, 
as people were very on edge three days after the attacks, and many were legitimately worried about civil liberties being taken away in the name of security. All of this, by the way, happened before social media. But playlists didn't exactly get a huge overhaul in the rest of that September. J-Lo's I'm Real, Alicia Keys' Fallen were the top two songs in the Billboard Hot 100 for most of the month, before and after the attacks. And we were still seeing a lot of airplay from acts like Train, Lifehouse, Stained, as well as Janet Jackson, Usher, Eve, Jay-Z, Missy Elliott, Mary J. Blige. Still... A few songs that had once had their day re-entered the charts and the mainstream because they were getting a number of requests, and that led to them actually being picked up and programmed in and hitting the Billboard Hot 100. Whitney Houston's version of the Star Spangled Banner, which itself charted back in 1991 after she sang it before Super Bowl 25 when Desert Storm was about to begin, re-entered the charts at number 50 the week of September 29th. Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA, which was a song the country artist recorded in the 80s, hit number 16 on the Hot 100 that same week as it resurfaced on mainstream radio stations in the days following the attacks. And while the song did not chart in 2001, Jeff Buckley's version of the Leonard Cohen song Hallelujah was used for a VH1-produced music video tribute to first responders and rescue workers. That was a clip that was played in heavy rotation once the channel returned to its regular programming. I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall and the major lift, the baffled king composing hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. But the music I want to talk about is the music that came afterward. There's a whole Wikipedia list of songs that reference September 11th, whether it be one like Long Live the World Trade in Jay-Z's Empire State of Mind, or an entire song like This Ain't No Rag, It's a Flag by the Charlie Daniels Band. I scrolled through the list and I made a note of what songs I wanted to talk about. My criteria were, had I heard of the song, did I listen to the song, or did I like the song? So while I think there are probably a number of Eagles fans out there, I'm not going to be including their song Hole in the World. And I'll be sticking to pop, rock, and hip-hop mostly, even though there are a number of country songs that are on the list. Why am I not covering much country? To be completely honest, I'm not a fan of most country. Oh sure, there's some really old classic country that I enjoy once in a while, your Johnny Cash, your Dolly Parton, your Willie Nelson, and some of the more contemporary acts like The Chicks, Casey Musgraves, make their way into my rotation every once in a while. Heck, I have even indulged in the Bluegrass Hour on WNRN, my local independent radio station, from time to time. But Toby Keith? Hard pass. One country song I do feel I, I should mention, out of obligation really, is the song where Were You When the World Stopped Turning by Alan Jackson. 
because it was one of the earliest songs about 9-11 to get wide release and airplay. That happened on November 26, 2001, and after he had debuted the song on November 7, 2001 at the CMA Awards, radio stations actually started playing that CMA Awards performance in lieu of no available single, and the song entered the country charts at number 25. That's the highest debut for a country song since Garth Brooks's The Thunder Rolls in the early 1990s. Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning was eventually a number one single on the country charts. It peaked at number 28 on the Billboard Hot 100, and it earned Jackson a Grammy for Best Country Song of the Year, as well as a Grammination for Song of the Year. Here's a small clip. Did you weep for the children who lost their dear loved ones? Pray for the ones who don't know. Did you rejoice for the people who walked from the rubble and sobbed for the ones left below? Did you burst out with pride for the red, white, and blue and the heroes who died just doing what they do? Did you look up to heaven for some kind of answer and look at yourself and what really matters? Another song that debuted around the same time as Jackson's that also had a strong chart performance was Paul McCartney's Freedom, a song he wrote in response to the events, which he witnessed from a plane he was on that was sitting on a tarmac at Kennedy Airport. Featuring Eric Clapton on lead guitar, McCartney debuted the song at the concert for New York City that he organized in October. The reception to the song was very positive, and the single dropped on November 5th, with all of the proceeds from the sale of the single going to charity. The song peaked on the adult contemporary chart at number 20, and it was number 97 on the Hot 100, although it became a mainstay in McCartney's live performances, especially during the pregame show of Super Bowl 36. Here's a short clip. This is my right. Some musical artists took inspiration from the attacks to write entire albums that addressed them or reference them. I'll talk about The Boss in a little bit, but before I do that, I want to mention Scarlet's Walk, the 2002 album by Tori Amos that is essentially a concept album that's a trip across America in the days following 9-11, starting in Los Angeles and eventually ending up on the East Coast. The song that most directly references the tragedy is called I Can't See New York, a haunting piece whose title is a direct reference to the way the city was obscured by the cloud of smoke and debris from the World Trade Center, but whose lyrics seem to be from the point of view of someone who has died in the towers. It may be that the person jumped, at least based on some of the lines. Either way, it's one of those very ethereal pieces that Amos does very well, with not much of a pop melody just kind of floats there, just wondering or in pause. Here's a little bit of it. And you would find me even in death. 
white cloud falling out and I know his lips are warm But I can't seem to find my way out, my way out I can't see New York As I'm circling down the white cloud falling out and But I can't seem to find my way out, my way out of this hunting ground. And finally, before I get to my more lengthy coverage of Bruce Springsteen, is the song An Open Letter to NYC by the Beastie Boys. From their 2004 album to The Five Burrows, which was the group's first album after 9-11, this isn't so much a song about 9-11 as it is a tribute to New York City while at the same time being a love letter to New York City that the Beastie Boys were born and raised in. This fits nicely in the subject genre of New York City songs that mentions or looks at the city's diversity and its often tumultuous and dirty atmosphere, even as it talks about how New York can come together in a time of crisis. Plus, it's got a ton of references, I understand, which makes me feel cool, even if I'm a lame-ass from Long Island. Here's a little bit of the song that does directly mention 9-11. After all that's going on, lifelong, we dedicate this song. Just a little something to show some respect to the city that plans and mans and tests. Uh, since 9-11, we're still living and loving life. We've been given, ain't nothing gonna take it away from us. We looking pretty and greedy, cause in the city we So I open the show with an excerpt from Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, wherein he talks about 9-11, how he felt, and how he discovered the themes that brought him to write and record The Rising. The album, which features 15 songs, was released on July 30th, 2002. It was his first album to hit number one on the charts since 1987's Tunnel of Love. And Springsteen won two Grammy Awards, one for Best Rock Album and another for the title track. It was also nominated for Album of the Year, but lost that to Come Away With Me by Nora Jones. 12 out of 15 songs on the album were written after 9-11, with three of them predating 2001. And what I'm going to do is look at some of the tracks briefly, and then we'll save the three that I listened to the most for an in-depth review. I'll start with the three tracks that were written before 2001, the oldest of which is called Waiting on a Sunny Day, which was written in the early to mid-1990s and, while not performed in concert, was a piece that the E Street Band would do during sound checks on their 2000 tour. The band then got into the studio to record it for The Rising. Personally, I love this song, and not just because Max Weinberg deliberately goes off-beat when Bruce sings, Without you, I'm a drummer girl that can't keep a beat.
It's a lost love song that's ironically upbeat, which adds to its melancholy. Funny enough, it wasn't until I did the research for this episode that I learned it was one of the songs that was written prior to 2001. I always thought that the sunny day reference to the song was a direct reference to September 11th because the weather, as I've mentioned before, was gorgeous. Nothing Man is the other track left over from the 90s. It was completed in 1994, but re-recorded for this album. The early 90s were an odd period for Springsteen. He'd started the decade with what were essentially a pair of solo albums, neither of which were as successful as hoped, and aside from the greatest hits album in 1995, didn't release much beyond Streets of Philadelphia, which won him an Oscar. He'd released The Ghost of Tom Jode soon after the Greatest Hits album and would eventually reunite with the E Street Band, leading to a successful tour and live album and then what we have here, The Rising. But going back to 94, though, I remember reading in his 1998 song lyrics collection book, Songs, the song lyric collection coffee table book, that Secret Garden, which is one of the Greatest Hits compilation songs and was later used in Jerry Maguire, was a track that was on an album that he put together in the early 90s, but had abandoned it because it wasn't up to his standards. I wouldn't be surprised if Nothing Man came from this. It sounds like it belongs with Secret Garden and a number of other songs on that are on disc four of the tracks box set. It's sung from the point of view of a lost, missing, or passed on love who is trying and wants to comfort the other person in the relationship, and that sadness is very upfront. I don't remember how I feel. I never thought I'd live to read about myself in my hometown people. How my brave young was forever changed in a mystic cloud of pink vapor. Darling, give me your kiss. Only understand I am the nothing The third and final track to predate 2001 was My City of Ruins, which is the album's closing song. This was originally written about Springsteen's hometown of Asbury Park, New Jersey, and it was performed at a charity concert that was meant to raise money to help revitalize the town. He would play the song on America, a tribute to heroes, that telethon I talked about, and at that performance, he was joined on stage by a few members of the E Street Band. They then recorded this studio version for The Rising, a version that makes for a beautifully mournful end to the album that has a bit of hope in its conclusion, with the lyrics, come on, rise up, being repeated.
Now, I love this album all the way through. I will listen to it at least once every, every September. There are a number of songs I'm fine with listening to once before going back to the three or four that I listened to on repeat. I'll run through those tracks quickly in order of placement on the album. Empty Sky, a piece that speaks from a family member of a victim and there are various feelings of grief, especially the anger and want for some sort of vengeance after what's happened, all against the backdrop of no air traffic in the days after 9-11. It's a solid rock piece that gets the pathos across. Worlds Apart is notable for having a Middle Eastern influence in Kawali singers in the introduction and for also being very erotic. I have to admit it's one I probably skipped the most, but I can appreciate the ambition of linking sex and tragedy and lovers who are of the two parts of the world that are most associated with the day. We see sex worked into tragedy in Let's Be Friends, Skin to Skin as well. Not to diminish the tragedy by talking about how people hooked up after 9-11, there is some truth to that. I mean, it's almost a cliche at this point that people see comfort in the arms of whoever they can in times of serious trouble. And this not only gets it across, but it does so in an almost playful way. Further on up the road has a lot of death and quasi-religious imagery, and I swear that I've been reading too many comics and watching too many Marvel shows and movies because I read the lyrics and think of Ghost Rider. <laughs> but there is a sense of I'm here for your soul in this piece, and not in a sinister way, but in a, well, hopeful, well, not hopeful way either. It's almost like a matter-of-fact way. The chorus is really, really good. The Fuse is the third song that approaches the angle of sex in the midst of tragedy and does so with a more sultry tune that suggests perhaps more of the memory of being with someone who has gone than the act of two people getting together. While the song works, I think this is ripe for a cover by an R&B artist, someone who has a smoother voice. Mary's Place is a song inspired by Sam Cooke's Meet Me at Mary's Place and is about a friend trying to help her widowed friend heal by inviting her to a party. When I saw Springsteen live in concert, this was one of those songs that was a centerpiece of his set, and I'm pretty sure it was during the song that he introduced the band. It's a great rocker of a piece, and one of those quintessential the boss is going to take you to rock and roll church songs. You're Missing brings the mood back down after the raucous Mary's place as someone looks around their house and sees everything that the deceased owned and where it should be, but that person is no longer there. It's almost as if the woman who was the subject of Mary's place returned after the party and is now wistfully looking around, remembering what life is now. It's sad and it's quiet without being maudlin. And finally, Paradise is the penultimate track on the album. It rounds out this group of songs, and I'd say it's probably the most ambition and possibly the most controversial piece, even though there actually was no controversy over it. It's from the point of a hijacker as he prepares to die during the attack, and it's not sympathetic, but slightly empathetic. It's 
haunting. It stays with you. It, it, it's an attempt to get inside the head of somebody who could commit something like this. Here's a short clip. Where the river runs to black I take school books from your pack Plastic wire in your kiss The breath of eternity on your lips In the crowded marketplace I drift from face to face I hold my breath and close my eyes I hold my breath and close my eyes And I wait for paradise And I wait for paradise Now, I've saved three tracks for the end here, and they are my favorite three songs on the album. I'll start my look at those favorite three songs with the lead-off track, Lonesome Day. This is a great opener and a tone setter that is about the conflicting emotion in people's reactions to the 9-11 attacks and how people were working through them. But instead of some of the other tracks in the album that dealt with grief, which were about people missing loved ones, this is from the point of view of someone who has lost someone he was in a relationship with, but has come to realize he didn't know that person very well. He feels lonely, he misses the person, and then he feels an emptiness because there's not enough for him to really hold on to. He thinks of revenge, but the revenge won't necessarily work. There's also a callback to the innocence of their relationship, but you get the sense that this is all being done through rose-tinted glasses. The lines of, if I could get through this lonesome day, and it's all right, it's all right, it's all right, are repeated with almost the sense of reassurance or someone trying to reassure himself. And this idea that someone might come to realize that what he's missing isn't what he thought it was is something that isn't necessarily explored in a lot of songs, especially the ones I have seen or heard about September 11th. Most tend to lean political or tend to be uplifting anthems of togetherness and strength. If they are about loss, they're about deep loss of a companion. Lonesome Day seeks to strip away the cliches that abounded about how anyone was supposed to feel after everything had happened, while the E Street Band does what it does best, grabs you with a tune and takes you with them. Maybe once I thought I knew Everything I needed to know about you Your sweet whisper, your tender touch But I didn't really know that much The second track on the album, the second track I want to talk about, is Into the Fire. 
And the tune does the same thing, as I was saying about Lonesome Day. The song tells the story of a firefighter headed into the Twin Towers to rescue people. It's told from the point of view of his wife and is slower than the prior song, as the band wants us to get the feeling of literally walking upstairs with heavy equipment strapped to our backs. The use of parallelism in the chorus makes us feel like we're taking a step with each line. Unlike Lonesome Day, where the lover barely knew who he was missing, these are the words of someone who is dedicated to the person, but while they miss him, understand why he's gone. There's a conflict in here, in that she needs him, but as the line says, love and duty called you someplace higher. And that is really mature, really mature way to look at this. She's not angry that the person's gone, just sad but with a sense of understanding. A companion to Into the Fire and a bookend to that song of sorts is the album's title track. The Rising is also about a firefighter heading into the towers, but is now from his point of view instead of from that of his wife. I wrote an entry about this song on Pop Culture Affidavit years ago. I'll link to it in the show notes because it is my favorite song on the album and it's among my favorite Springsteen songs of all time. Unsubtle with its metaphor, he compares the firefighter to a priest via a reference to the cross of St. Florian, which is the cross the firefighters wear. And as the song goes on, the inevitable happens that he and everyone in the stairwell with him are now going to die. He has them take his hand and leads them into the afterlife, which happens when we reach the song's bridge, which are visions of his life, the world, and everything, that fabled vision of everything flashing before your eyes before you finally cross over. And oh man, is this one of my favorite parts of the song ever. The bridge builds us up toward a release, crescendoing as we get closer and closer to the final chorus. And when that chorus kicks in, we'll, we'll give it a listen. I see Mary in the garden In the garden of a thousand sides There's only pictures of our children Dancing in the sky, filled with light May you feel your arms around me May you feel your blood mixed with mine The dream of life comes to me Like a catfish dancing on the end of my line the sky of blackness and sorrow Dream of love the sky of love, the sky of tears Oh, 
Now, I'm not a religious person whatsoever, but I feel that every time I listen to this song. There's hope in this song, but not false hope, because there's also a lot of humanity in it as well. Throughout the rising, both song and album, Springsteen never denies what happened. He never glosses over it. He never uses it to promote some sort of other agenda. He clearly knows what his job is here, and he clearly knows the role he plays as the person that everyone is looking to for help, guidance, or solace. I don't think it's an album that he would have necessarily been able to do in his 20s or his 30s, as it shows a singer-songwriter who's grown up and become comfortable with being grown up. Now in his 70s, he's still producing music, and it doesn't sound like he's trying to recapture his... Well, let's just use the word glory days because that's what you're thinking too. And while this may sound selfish, I'm grateful for this album because it helps me properly reflect on the day away from the flags, political speeches, and sentiment that is usually all over my social media feeds. All of the songs on this album and all the songs in this episode are available on Spotify. And I'll link to them in the show notes, which will be on popcultureaffidavit.com. So thank you again for coming along on this fifth part of the miniseries. In part six, I will be finishing up with a bit of a hodgepodge of things, going through a list of content I really couldn't fit anywhere else, but I find to be some of the most memorable pieces that I remember. I'll also be taking a time to answer any feedback I get in this series, so please drop me a line at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or get in touch with me on Twitter and Facebook. Not only would I like to hear your feedback, but I'd like to hear your stories, either what you remember about that day or the thoughts that you have 20 years later. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. This has been 9-11 in Popular Culture, which is presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. The producer and narrator is Tom Paneris. Background music is by Sanji, MD Sabir Khan, Royalty Free Music, and Dick DeRitter, all of which are used via the Creative Commons license. Other clips used in this series are done so under fair use. Show notes are available at popcultureaffidavit.com. Emails can be sent to me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at popcultureaffidavit. And on Twitter at popaff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thank you very much for listening.